Hello, everybody, and welcome to A Biblical Frame. I know it's been a while since we've gathered together online like this um, and produced a podcast, but we are glad to be back together. Today, we have a very special guest in Charles Hoff, who is going to introduce himself in a moment, but we thought it would be important at this juncture, now that we have some distance from everything that has happened over the last two years, to kind of take stock, to see where we're at, to look at some of the things that um, were suggested were going on um, at the early stages of the pandemic, and whether or not they really were going on. So we want to find out what we have learned about COVID, um, learned about the responses to COVID, learned perhaps about the vaccines, um, some of the things that we're worried about early on, and um, to really seek after the truth about these things. And that's what we're going to look at in uh, part A of this podcast. And then in part B, we're going to really try to dig down deep and find out what this means for the church, what we still can learn going forward about how to be the people of God in a very divided world, because many of us have experienced profound division, not only in the church, but with our families. And we're still wondering, how do we act as the church? How do we speak into the world in such uh, perilous times? And often they do feel like we're living in perilous times. So that's where we're going on the podcast today, uh, in part A and part B. To begin, though, I'm just like the Everyone who's sitting around here, you can't see us, of course, but we're going to introduce ourselves. So once again, my name is Ed Gerber, and I am coming at this from a more biblical, theological perspective. And sitting next to me is Ivan De Silva. Thank you, Ed. My name is Ivan De Silva. I um, am um, a recently retired detective from the Vancouver Police Department, where I worked for 27 years. And also, in the meantime, I uh, throughout that whole period, I taught part-time at Trinity West Univers- University uh, in uh, the Religious Studies Department and also at uh, another local college called Pacific Life Bible College. And now that I'm retired from the police force, I can dedicate more time to teaching and researching and writing. And I've been interested in this issue from the very beginning, and I sense from the very beginning that there was something wrong with what we were being told, and um, decided to investigate for myself. And as a result of that, I realized that um, not everything was as it, as it appeared to be, and hence my interest in these discussions. Yeah, and I'm Jan Zimmerman, a philosophical theologian and professor of theology at Regent College here in Vancouver. And I'm Douglas Farrell, professor of theology and ethics at McGill University in Montreal, I've been uh, writing and and uh, and thinking and speaking about this issue also from the beginning of the pandemic, and some of my work on that can be found at my Substack, Desiring a Better Country. I'm Charles Hoff. I'm a, a family physician um, and formerly emergency room physician. Um, I I grew up in South Africa where I did my medical training. I came to faith in Christ in 1977 in my first year at university in Johannesburg from the, under the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ, some American missionaries there who, who found me. And, uh, but I, I received a, 
a, a sort of a Christianized Anglican education in in Christian schools in South Africa, for which I'm very grateful, but but didn't understand or the gospel or receive Christ until I was 18 years old. So I came to Canada. So I've worked as a medical doctor in, in, in South Africa, in the United Kingdom and in Canada and came to Canada in 1990, where I have worked since then as a rural family doctor and emergency room physician. And when this pandemic started and I heard that they were making gene-based vaccines, I I was I did some research into the previous history of gene-based vaccines, which had been attempted after the first SARS epidemic back in 2002-2003. After that was um, that that had ended, they tried to make gene-based vaccines against it, and it was that they were a disaster. And the the because they this problem arose called pathogenic priming, where it left the laboratory animals actually more vulnerable to the disease organism if that, than if they hadn't been vaccinated. So I was very suspicious that this wasn't going to go well right from the start, especially when in this pandemic there was there had been no animal trials. And all the, the only thing they had changed was the delivery system um, of the gene-based vaccines. So as soon as I saw evidence of harm, uh, right probably two, two or three months into this vaccine rollout, um, there was news from Europe that 12 countries had shut down the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe because of blood clots. Um, I'd sent an email to a group of my colleagues who were giving these shots saying there is evidence of harm. There is an ethical principle that you're st- supposed to stop the experiment if, you know, if, if, if there is evidence of harm. And uh, so I said, you know, obviously there's a liability issue with this if you give people something that is harmful and don't tell them that it may be harmful, uh, th- there's a liability issue. Anyway, that that was a private email to 18 colleagues. And somebody sent that to my or the authorities, the local health authorities. It was then sent as a complaint to the College of Physicians and Surgeons that I was questioning the safety of these shots. And I was reprimanded and told that I was firstly going to be put under investigation for for that email and for for causing vaccine hesitancy and that I was not allowed to say anything negative about these shots in our healthcare facility um so effectively I was given a gag order that you're not allowed to question the safety of these shots so immediately that raised a huge red flag for me this is very odd that a doctor who is concerned about the safety of his own patients is not allowed to question the safety of a new experimental treatment so about four weeks after that, um, I explained to an emergency room nurse the science in, in great detail of why a person with natural immunity doesn't need to be vaccinated against the disease to which they're already immune. And I explained the science that showed that natural immunity was very durable. And on the basis of that conversation with the emergency room nurse, I was fired from the emergency room. I'd been I'd been an emergency room doctor in Canada for 31 years with not one single patient complaint against me. And yet I was fired for explaining the science of natural immunity to the nurse and and telling her that somebody who has natural immunity doesn't need this shot. So this, of, this of course, was another uh, complaint against me. So I've been under investigation by the college. When I started to see very serious injuries 
in my own patients, because I was still allowed to practice as a private doctor, I started to see initially very serious neurological problems from the Moderna shots. And so, so I, I was, I was told that I wasn't allowed to question this to my colleagues. So I sent letters to the, well, to the, the person I was directed that I needed, if I had any questions, they had to go to the medical health officer for our region. So I sent a letter there saying, how do I treat this? What is the cause of these injuries? And how do I treat this as these people's doctor? This letter was sent to the college as another complaint against me. Um, so of course they had no answers. Uh, so then eventually I sent a letter to our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, asking mostly the same questions. What is the mechanism of injury? How do I treat this? And is it ethical to continue this vaccine rollout in the light of the evidence of harm? And um, so that, that, that created quite a furor, that letter, because it was sent as an open letter. I was warned that she doesn't uh, respond to letters. So unless you make it an open letter, it's going in the shredder. So, so that, that letter is again also used against me. You're not allowed to ask those questions, um, because it creates vaccine hesitancy. And so, so I'm still under investigation with the college. My trial is scheduled to start. It's a 10 day trial starting on the 13th of, of February, uh, for which I will be disciplined for so called misinformation. And the misinformation is claiming that these shots cause microclotting, claiming that ivermectin is an effective treatment for COVID, claiming that these shots might affect female fertility, um, claiming that these shots have killed a large number of people. This is all considered to be misinformation for which I will be tried. So um, I should just mention one more thing. Um, after I got no answers from the, the authorities as to what the cause of the injuries in my own patients were, I set out to try and uncover that for myself. And I, when I discovered that the, the delivery system of these gene-based vaccines was literally designed to take these spike proteins into every part of your body, into your brain, into your lungs, into your heart, it doesn't just stay in your arm. When I discovered that and I realized that the place where the, the, the spike proteins were going to be made was actually going to be mostly in the cells lining your blood vessels because they would get absorbed from the vascular system, I realized that it was inevitable that clotting was going to happen on a massive scale and that most of it was going to be microscopic in the smallest vessels in the capillaries because that's where absorption happens mostly is in the capillaries. So the only way to find out if that was true was to do this blood test called a D-dimer test, which is done in emergency rooms to see if a person has a blood clot. So I started doing this very simple research on my own patients in my own practice Um getting them to do this blood test before and after their shot, seven, before their shot to see what their baseline was, after their shot to see how much it went up and found that 53% of people have evidence of clotting even though they have no symptoms. And so, so this, of course, is part of, you know, I've been told this is misinformation and, you know, I'm not supposed to have done this. I was supposed to have got the the permission of some ethics committee in order to be able to do this. Um, so, so that's basically my story and, and where I got to. So, yeah, I think maybe that sums it up. Uh, Charles, if I might ask, <clears throat> when you go to 
this disciplinary hearing and they they charge you with spreading misinformation do they have to prove that charge like um uh, you will say for example that it causes clotting do they then have to produce evidence that it does not and that or is it is this definition of misinformation just settled and um, they don't have to prove any of these any of the science that's a good question and i don't really know the answer you know the college is not a scientific body the college is not an academic institution they are simply a group of regulators and their job is supposed to be simply to ensure that doctors are appropriately trained for the work that they do and that they are doing the work in an ethical manner. In other words, their job is essentially to protect the public. So they don't do science. And in fact, um, I, I did have a preliminary interview with them where they got the fact checkers from Reuters to check on my science of the microclotting, which is the fact checkers in the media are just journalists who appoint themselves as so-called experts. And the fact checkers told me that, no, this is the D-dimer test is not a valid test for checking for microclotting and that it doesn't occur. I mean, so that's the level of their science, unfortunately. Mm. It's absurd. But, but there's very good evidence from autopsy work now uh, for 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 everything that I have said, um, so I don't know whether they will accept that as evidence. So I have I have two questions. The one that's maybe on the mind of some of the listeners uh, who are like me, um, we did get vaccinated. I got the first, and then I got the second, and I had um, our chest pain. I won't call it heart pain, but I had serious chest pain for months after that. And when I spoke to my doctor um, and to my cardiologist about it, they said, if you don't experience any pain when you're exercising, then don't worry about it. It's nothing. But I had never had this level of kind of heart pain or chest pain before. And so I guess the question I'm asking is, and I don't have it so much anymore. It's kind of dissipated. So the question I'm having is, for those of us who did get the vaccine, are we hooped or is there hope? <laughs> That's a, that is a really good question. The fact that you're still here and talking to me is a, is a really good sign. The, the more time that passes, the better. But unfortunately, the damage from these things is often hidden. And just as I found in my own patients that 53% have evidence of clotting somewhere in their body and they had no symptoms, there have been two fascinating studies, one um, from Switzerland and one um, from Bangkok in Thailand on myocarditis and pericarditis in teenagers. And both of them showed that approximately one in 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 the in the Bangkok study, it was one in forty three teenagers who got this shot had myocarditis or pericarditis, and was a, approximately one in thirty for males. But the concern was that in more than half of them, it was asymptomatic. So 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 just as the microclotting in my patients was asymptomatic, but yet the damage is permanent. Those teenagers, those students that, that got those shots and had asymptomatic myocarditis, that scarring in the heart can leave permanent damage. So we, I, I don't know what tests they did on you, but it, but it is possible you may have had some degree of pericarditis, which might not have in 
increased in symptoms with exertion that might have left some scarring. Mm-hmm. Um, and heart muscle doesn't regenerate. Lung, lung, brain, spinal cord, nervous tissue cannot. There's some parts of our body that literally does not regenerate. If it is damaged, it is scarred. And your body can compensate to some degree, but the damage is permanent and, of course, will accumulate with every shot. So I think the main take-home message is don't get any more shots. Yeah. Um, they, they don't stop you getting COVID. They don't stop you spreading COVID. They don't stop you dying of COVID. They don't pr- protect anyone else. And th- there's really no benefit. I, and the second part of my question was I trusted the medical establishment Michelle and I, my wife, had great hesitancy. We have four daughters, and I didn't want them to get it, neither us, but we trusted. We said, could it, like, don't they have our best interests in mind? And, you know, they certainly wouldn't give us something unless it was safe and effective. And I, I have, I not only might have a damaged heart, I have damaged trust in the medical establishment and in our governing officials at what level has this hit you too in terms of your trust of those who are in authority yeah it 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 really has hit me you know i would i previously trusted the medical journals i previously trusted the the so-called scientific experts at health canada um who would put out what they called clinical practice guidelines and various things like that which was um sort of recommendations they were never um, mandates, but there were recommendations on how to treat certain conditions. Um, it was always left up to the discretion of the doctor, you know, because only the doctor knows the patient so that you, the authorities would never tell you how to manage your patient because it's not their patient. They don't know the intricacies of it. Um, so, so when I've seen, for example, what um, doctors of BC, which used to be called the BC Medical Association, they put out recommendations for for doctors. Uh, they put out recommendations for the when for the public. When I've seen what they say about these COVID shots, for example, they said that all of the normal safety research had been done, which was blatantly untrue. There was it is normally mandatory to have animal trials, and there were none done, none, zero. And as I say, you know, in in the previous times they tried a gene-based vaccines, the animal trials showed it was didn't work. Well, it did work, and, and, and the animals got antibodies. But but six months later or five months later, when they challenged them with the virus, many of them literally went into a cytokine storm and either got very sick or died. In other words, it so primed them against this virus that their immune system overreacted. And so they never even got to human trials because the animal trials showed it wasn't safe. And yet the authorities have lied to the people, including the the, the doctors of BC, by telling people that all of the normal safety protocols and, and standards had been done. They just said they would just speed it up and, and, and different instead of doing phase one, phase two, phase three trials, they, they said they just did them parallel so that that's how they speed. And it's just not true. So I've lost a lot of trust in the so-called medical experts. There have been fraudulent studies on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine trying to discredit them and, and show that they they are not effective. They are blatant fraud. And so I think out of all of this, we need to 
all have a very healthy degree of skepticism. And we need to think very carefully about what we believe because we have been deceived. Well, it is no wonder that people are reaching for grand theories to see who is conspiring um, because it, it's very hard to explain how we are in this position and um, why this is happening on such a grand scale. Yeah, um, I have a question, Charles. Is At this point, if I was a listener who was less informed, I would say, okay, this is where... This is where I, this is where I cannot follow you. Why would the government, why would the health authorities, possibly do this? I mean, and then maybe if you can, if you can add in uh, this question here is, they told us this is a vaccine. I've so often heard um, it's just a vaccine, Jens. What's your problem? Uh, just take the thing. I mean, you know. And I, I said, well, I've taken lots of vaccines in my life, but this is different. But people in general did not know that this was different from a regular vaccine. They just, and it wasn't explained either. Um, my favorite story is going to one of the pharmacies here and seeing how people are <clears throat> lining up for the shot. And they're given a piece of paper to give their consent. But if you glance at that paper, there is nothing explained about the vaccines. There is no explanation how these might be different from a traditional vaccine. Again, you know, why Why would a government, why would health authorities push this thing um, and not explain this better and yet claim it's safe and effective? I think probably the most likely reason is a massive conflict of interest. The, the Unfortunately, the pharmaceutical industry, which is massively wealthy and generates vast amounts of wealth, the, the fact that they pay Health Canada, they pay governments, they pay universities, they pay a m huge number of organizations who are sort of become dependent on their funding. And as a result, as soon as you start paying some personal organization money, you then have them under your control. And, and the, the, it, they, it's an it's a sort of an indirect form of bribery where they know the money is going to cease if you don't toe the line and you then have control over them and i think unfortunately that is what has happened with government organizations trudeau here in canada trudeau offered a billion dollars to every province that would push the vaccine mandates now that wasn't for buying vaccines a billion dollars. So where did it all go? It trickled down to people who were all part of this agenda. So I think, unfortunately, a lot of this has has to have been financially driven. Um, um, can you can you just briefly explain how this vaccine actually works? These mRNA vaccines, I mean, in contrast to a traditional vaccine and why they why, as you say, they're not a good idea? Yeah, I'll explain that basically because they should never have been called vaccines. But I think calling them vaccines was a was a very clever tactic because it made people trust them. Firstly, normally with with any medical treatment, this should have been called gene therapy. But but people would have been mistrustful of gene therapy because it sounds like you're being genetically modified which you are, but, but they didn't want to say that. 
um, because these shots cause um, they literally can enter the nucleus of a cell. It's been proven in liver cells. You literally this gene can be incorporated into your own DNA and they also cause gene deletions. So they're actually genetically modifying people by adding and subtracting. So calling it a vaccine gave them indemnity against harm, against um, uh, in indemnity against being sued if it caused harm, like you would with another with any other medical product, and gave them. So it was sort of a legal loophole that gave them this indemnity. And it bought the trust of the public who said, we've had vaccines for, for, for over a hundred years. We know they're safe and effective. This is just another vaccine, but, but it's, it is not a vac, you know, a vaccine was previously defined as, as something that gave you immunity to a disease. And of course, as everyone now knows, this doesn't make you immune. To anything. In fact, it, 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 and sadly, you know, after not very long after having your shot, it makes you more susceptible to the COVID virus than if you hadn't been vaccinated. So it actually does the opposite, unfortunately, uh, which has been tragic that it's done that. But, but it is not a vaccine. So normal vaccines work by injecting either an altered virus or a fragment of virus of either a virus or a bacteria into the person's body, into their, into a muscle, usually their arm, deltoid muscle in the arm. And the body, then the immune system recognizes those foreign proteins and mounts an antibody reaction against it. So that when it then encounters the real thing, that the, the real virus or the real bacteria, it's, it's, it's encountered it before. It's got antibodies and it can defend your body against that invading organism. Now, how these, how these work is these work by literally injecting strands of genetic material into your body. They're the, in the Moderna and the Pfizer, they're packaged in a lipid nanocapsule. So this little lipid nanocapsule was previously used for chemotherapy. It was used as a delivery system to get, to bypass the natural barriers in our bodies. So for example, we have a barrier uh, called the blood brain barrier. There's a placental barrier, for example, in a pregnant woman that would, and these barriers are designed by God to keep toxic substances from those most vulnerable and sensitive areas of your body. And the delivery system that they specifically chose for this was designed to bypass those barriers so that literally this shot, which is now we and we know Moderna knew about this. They had done animal trials with this lipid nanocapsule to see where it went and, and knew that it went every part of your body. They knew it went intravenous. So people who after their shot get dizziness, nausea, headache, fatigue, any kind of neurological things like that, that is from the spike proteins causing inflammation in their brain. It literally, your brain gets spiked and these spike, pro so, so what happens is these little lipid nanocapsules are filled with millions, billions, in fact, of strands of messenger RNA. They're absorbed into your cells um, where the, the, the capsules open and then your body's own mechanism using ribosomes 
reads that genetic code on the RNA and starts manufacturing the spike proteins. The spike proteins become part of the cell wall of that cell, which then your body then recognizes this foreign spike that is part of the cell wall that's not supposed to be that recognizes it as a foreign protein and mounts an antibody reaction against it. And that's the idea that you then have antibodies against that spike protein. And, and that's the idea. The problem is that it has made your body into a spike protein factory. Your body now is manufacturing a non-human protein that is actually very toxic to your body because it causes clotting and bleeding and inflammation and gene editing. So, so that is the problem with these is that it, it literally... It, it's nothing like any conventional vaccine. Uh, and, and of course, you know, Moderna is working on 30 more other products that work in the same way. Uh, it, it is, this is the new technology, but it is, even those little lipid nanocapsules are very harmful to our bodies. So, so that's the difference between this and a conventional vaccine. So does this suggest that um, what we've seen, initial reactions, like my daughter, Lauren, the day after her uh, first shot, she came upstairs after a sleep, said, mom and dad knocked on our door. I don't feel very well. And conked out from, she was standing tall. She went bang on the floor. And, uh, it, but the question is, you know, so we've seen initial responses of the body to the vaccine, but is it kind of like a tsunami where the water's pulling out and we're yet to see the great tidal wave? Because if this thing's, if my body now is a spike protein factory, then maybe in a year or two, I'm really going to see something bad going on. Is that a possibility? We just don't know. Um, we have no idea. That, 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 normally, there's an on-off switch for genes. You know, we've got a... Th- We've got a huge number of genes in our body that don't all function at the same time. You know, they would certainly when you need certain proteins, our body is designed to be able to to get that gene to start working and manufacturing whatever it's designed to manufacture. And so our body turns on and off the genes as we need them. And so we don't know what the on-off switch is for these spike proteins or how long they will endure, but it, it is now known that they endure many, many months. We don't know how many years. There is some evidence. There was a study, I think, that showed that they were still evident 15 months later, but that was actually after a COVID infection, which is the same spike protein, but um, but that they were still, still detectable. Are they doing a... a are you aware of studies that are going on which are investigating this and to see what the longer-term effects are? Well, I know there's a multitude of research going on, but usually until it's published, I, we don't know about mm. it. Okay. I'd like to um, <clears throat> bring this down to um, our readers who <clears throat> were struggling with this and um, whether to get the vaccine or not. And as they were... There were several um, points of pressure that were applied uh, to convince them that they should. And uh, two of them was, and I'm speaking mainly in the Christian community here. One of them was, this is a way, getting the vaccine is a way of loving your neighbor and taking care of your neighbor. 
And the second one was, uh, this is a way of taking care of the medical system. Otherwise, uh, if you don't get the vaccine, you'll get sick and you'll overwhelm the medical system. Are you able to uh, give us some insight onto those two claims? Um, How did you yourself, I'm sure maybe you heard that uh, being addressed to yourself, that you're not loving your neighbor if you don't get vaccinated. Yes, absolutely. And this was... This was preached from many pulpits. This was spoken by the the media and and all over the the place. People were basically told it was their duty to get vaccinated, that they could keep other people safe. You know, children were told that that, that they could kill their grandparents mm-hmm. by not being vaccinated, and and so unfortunately, this was an absolute abuse of most people's sense of goodwill, of wanting to do the right thing, of wanting to protect those around them. This this kind, basic kindness in the heart of most people where they don't want to be a risk to other people was, was abused. And this was, this was based on three lies. And I really think we need to call them lies. I mean, the first was the first lie was the massive exaggeration of the risk of COVID. You know, COVID-19, when it was absolutely at its worst, which is with the alpha and beta variants and the original Wuhan strain, was no more dangerous than the flu. In other words, it, it had a 99.7% recovery rate. That was at its worst. That's about three in a thousand people die from the flu, usually the very frail elderly. With COVID as it is now, it is way less than that. It's about 99.9% recovery. In other words, one in a thousand. Again, the very frail elderly, the people with, with cancers or other serious problems. And in Canada, the average age of people who have died of COVID is 82. And and of the people that have died of COVID, the average was four comorbidities. In other words, there are very, very few people that just died of COVID. You had to be either very elderly or very sick from other things to die of COVID. So that was the first lie to push people into this vaccine was by massively exaggerating the risk. If most people had known that this disease was no more dangerous than the flu, I think there would have been much more resistance to the lockdowns, the masking, the, the forced injections, the, the churches closed, all of that. If they had known that that the government was lying to us, the media were lying to us, the health authorities were lying to us. The, the, the second lie that pushed this, this narrative that it's your duty to get vaccinated was the myth of asymptomatic transmission. This is the idea that an asymptomatic, otherwise healthy person can somehow be the spreader of disease. You know, doctors have never said that before. Of of course, there is a brief period shortly before you get symptoms that you could shed some virus if you were incubating it. But the number of virus is tiny. And normally the infectious dose for COVID-19 is considered to be 300 virions. In other words, 300 viruses would have to get into your system to be enough to actually infect you. And if somebody who is just incubating it, I mean, you'd have to be stuck in the elevator with them for two hours or in some very confined space for a prolonged period of time. You could not get infected by sitting next to them in a classroom or or, 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 or passing them in the supermarket. 
this so this was part of this myth of asymptomatic transmission which is was really a myth that was used to terrify people it was used to get people completely healthy people to all wear masks um so that was the second lie the third lie was the idea that you can keep other people safe by being vaccinated which was absolutely untrue it wasn't even tested to see if it did that it, it the 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 authorities told us that it would prevent transmission but there was absolutely no science to show that and so they abused the goodwill of christians and canadians by basically those three lies and and i think and they told us to believe the science but there was no science behind it and um the science of the masks yeah there's also equally little science behind masks there's now more than 150 scientific studies published showing that masks made pretty well no difference and in fact sadly in many cases made things worse because and the the reason why masks make things worse is firstly a mask cannot stop an airborne virus there's airborne viruses are so tiny that they go straight through a mask also approximately 20% of the air that you breathe in or out goes around the mask yeah. and especially if a man has any facial hair it's going to be way more than 20% going around it it you would have to have a very tight fitting um, and even n95 masks do not work to stop airborne viruses so the masks were an important part of increasing the fear mm. um but they were very harmful in a number of ways firstly they um they reduced your oxygen level and they found that children that had to wear a mask in school couldn't learn because they had less oxygen they they you know they were oxygen deprived but not only that it substantially reduced communication when you can't see facial expression you can't see the other person's lips when they speak it substantially it muffles their voice it reduces communication so it did enormous harm particularly to children but it's now been well proven that wearing masks increases your risk of other infections other respiratory infections or sinus infections because you literally have a a petri dish of microbes stuck over your nose and mouth normally your immune system is able to rid your body of invading microbes by breathing them out wow. and if they then get trapped over your nose and mouth you can't get rid of them so the they've now been so many studies that compared equivalent jurisdictions population areas that had similar population demographics um where they compared areas that mandated masks to compared areas where there were no masks or no mask mandates and there was literally no difference to the transmission of covid or covid deaths and and overall health was worse in 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 many areas that were wearing masks it it actually made things worse that's incredible and i want to i want to add a fourth um uh lie lie well i'm fourth factor i think if you know if you just beautifully i was going to ask you all these questions charles so you just beautifully covered exactly those uh questions we're going to ask you around these covid measures uh with these three lies the fourth one of course the fourth aspect uh that cemented all this in place is censorship that's that's probably the thing that got me most uh suspicious 
from the beginning, um, I've, I've followed very closely uh, the European scene um, where highly credentialed uh, doctors, scientists, virologists, immunologists who have said from the beginning very much many of the things that you've said now because much of this research, especially into vaccines, was already available – um, who were simply censored, who could not, who you know, like you, who were you couldn't speak out, uh, who were smeared, who were uh, defamed, um, who were called quacks in the media by quacks. Um, it, it was incredible. I mean, these these uh, fact checkers have the same um, they're the same mechanism all over internationally was used. Um, and like, for, for example, the one, my favorite one was, I think he had a degree in uh, Islamic studies, like a liberal arts degree in Islamic studies, who posed as a fact checker for medical things. It was just incredible. Um, but this censorship, I, I don't know what you think about that, or, or if, if Doug might want to say something about this. It's just, I couldn't believe it, how it was exercised seemingly in concert from health bureaucrats, from the media, from politicians, and then in some ways was internalized. I mean, we censored ourselves. I saw that within the Christian community, right? You took this on, you internalized this, and, uh, you know, up, up with your mask for all our peace, for all our safety's sake, you know, um, from one Christian to another, without any charity um, being given or any benefit of the doubt whether you might actually have asthma or whether you might actually have a condition that doesn't allow that, whether you might actually be vax injured, you couldn't take another shot. Like the mercilessness uh, of that, uh, all supposedly, uh, you know, under the guise of loving your neighbor, uh, was quite devastating. So I just wonder if you, if you wanted to comment on that censorship aspect. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I I mentioned to you about how I had been censored literally initially from a private email, was literally um, reprimanded for, and I was told that I was putting people at risk by creating vaccine hesitancy, which, which astounded me because there was, there was no proof that the vaccine worked and no proof that it was safe. Um, and so, how how one then can be construed at it i suppose at best you could call it a potential risk um but it you know does it's it's a it's an it's an odd concept to be told that you're putting people at risk by making them hesitant about an experimental treatment so this censorship has been international and universal. I mean, we've seen some of the most accomplished and brilliant doctors and scientists across the world um, lose their medical licenses, lose their academic credentials, lose their jobs. Um, as you say, being called quacks, um, people who were literally amongst the world's best have been treated like they've lost their mind. And, and this on its own should raise an enormous red flag. You know, people like like Peter McCulloch, for example, you know, who's literally one of the most accomplished and brilliant cardiologists and epidemiologists, best, you know, extraordinarily well qualified to comment on on this and 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 who has saved millions of lives by his early treatment protocols. And is the same thing being censored and 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 punished 
and persecuted. It is it is absolute craziness. Wherever you get censorship of freedom of speech and freedish and censorship of scientific debate, it is a huge red flag that obviously there's a cover up happening. So this this brings up a very important point because one of the criticisms that we have had about this podcast when we talk about COVID matters, not that that's only what we've talked about, is that we don't have um, those who disagree, that we're monoperspectival. We're only pushing one perspective. But I know, like with Jay Bhattacharya and my, uh, cool, what's Martin Kuldorf? Kuldorf. And Sunetra Gupta, the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, and two of our great Canadian um, spokesmen as well. I can't remember their names. One of them is a virologist. Um, what's his name? Byron Bridal. Byron Bridal. Yeah, Byron Bridal. Um, that he, Byron Bridal in particular said, I will have a debate with anyone, anytime, anywhere. Bring it on. Let's talk about this publicly. But they haven't been able to get people to engage in the debate. Have you have you suffered the same fate? Well, I haven't challenged to debate anyone, but I know it has been done over and over again. And and they literally, when the truckers were in Ottawa, they asked Teresa Tam, and they they asked all the top doctors there to come and debate against their doctors there. And and I think they had, I think they had Byron Bridal. Um, they had, uh, I can't remember. Anyway, they had three doctors there who offered to debate any any other doctor who would debate them, and they literally refused to debate it. And I think it's because they, the so-called science that they use is so narrow. You know, they pick and choose their evidence. It's a bit like you know the the Canadian authorities that told doctors that they weren't allowed to use ivermectin based it on a on on one single as far as i'm aware one single study that was done in brazil that has since shown to be very deeply flawed and um and not of scientific value because it wasn't a properly constructed study it was very misleading so they the 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 the, the people who claim they're following the science pick and choose their science very carefully and ignore the rest of the evidence which is of course you know that's not truth seeking um mm-hmm. especially when the science you choose and the tobacco you know we we in south africa we used to call this tobacco science um where the tobacco industry did this for years they would employ scientists to design studies showing that that cigarettes didn't cause lung cancer and of course you know they'd recruit a whole lot of people that that worked in an asbestos mine or something like that and 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 accuse you know put them in the control group and then to show that the cancer rate was the same in both groups and and, and so they did all sorts of crazy things that that muddied the water so that when the government panels would then look at the evidence for t- tobacco causing problems and say well there's some studies that show this and there's some studies that show that so we it's not really clear we're just going to watch this you know and 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 for years they d- carried on pushing tobacco on teenagers on everybody uh w- with using fraudulent science to to push it and the same has been done unfortunately in this pandemic with fraudulent science yeah so that that is a really good point. Uh, I think it's worth um, sitting on just for a minute. Um, that standard medical textbook science and immunology, epidemiology, 
um, was overturned. Like that, you know, I mean, uh, lockdowns, masking, social distancing for viral outbreaks. I know there was a standard protocol internationally known, you know, uh, even listed at the WHO, that these measures are not to be used for social disability. Uh, they're, they're, we knew that. So there's, that's one thing. Another thing would be natural immunity you talked about earlier. Um, that is standard textbook immunology. Uh, that was controverted. That was overturned. So what the tobacco science that you just called it did uh, in that sort of narrow field of you know trying to sell a pro- product tabac- tobacco uh, to discredit your know, standard science, we have just seen on a massive global international scale, and and that's something. I think that's really, really important to ponder. How can that be? And that's why um, I just want to go back. You mentioned Peter McCullough, for instance, who has already become a controversial figure just because he's mentioned so often, which is the fate often of these kind of, you know, brave souls. But there's a host of other names uh, that people don't know. Uh, Whenever I talk to people and ask them what happened and so on, they will usually reference scientific experts who were who were the same way, right, were cancelled because they adhered to the standard textbook science and protocols that were in place. And that happened across uh, the globe in every, in every nation. I mean, that is a massive phenomenon that people need to, need to comprehend and face, I think. I don't know it what is. that means ultimately, but it, it's stunning. It is stunning. And, and, you know, you mentioned how standard science has been trampled you know never before have doctors ever claimed that a vaccine induced immunity is better than natural immunity if you've if you had chickenpox as a child no doctor in his right mind would tell you you still needed to be vaccinated mm. it, 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 it that doctor would be completely irresponsible and if they told you that because the natural immunity is always better than a vaccine induced immunity. And so in this pandemic where they have told people who had natural immunity from because they were COVID recovered, that they still needed to be vaccinated to improve it when there was no evidence that the vaccines produced long-term immunity and there's still no evidence that they do. I mean, that's why you have to keep having boosters is because they don't produce long-term. There's no immune memory. That's why you have to keep having boosters. Whereas natural immunity has immune memory, which is very durable. And and so, so as you say, science has been turned on its head. Never before have doctors withheld treatment for people with a potentially life-threatening medical disease. And yet in this pandemic, they told doctors that they weren't allowed to use um, ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or any of, the, any of these other things outside of a clinical trial. Um, in other words, they, 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 they literally blocked these life-saving treatments, which is, compl- which is absurd to tell people to go home and do nothing until they can hardly breathe. And then you'll, then you'll start treatment is, is, is morally indefensible. I mean, if you were getting a pneumonia and you phoned, you went to your doctor and said, you know, I think I'm getting a pneumonia. And the doctor listened to your chest and said, yep, you're getting a pneumonia. So go home and do nothing. And when your lips turn blue, phone 911. I think, you know, you, you'd get pretty upset. But that's effectively what they've told. They're so, you know, COVID has turned out to be one of the most easily treated viral infections. 
There are a multitude of very, very safe and effective treatments, but but the authorities have desperately wanted people to believe there's no treatment and that nothing but the shots will keep them safe. And it's all just been a lie. Okay, um, Doug, Doug has a question. Before Doug gets there, I just uh, want to just add, you don't have to answer, um, what, morally indefensible, you said. Uh, one of the things we haven't talked about, but I think it's also very important that folks should... Um, uh, have in their mind is the vaccination of children. I mean, that that to me, knowing that they have zero risk from COVID, which is well established, and yet vaccination, I just read, is pushed on the children. I just read this this week, a National Post article, where I think it was entitled, let's stay safe for the holidays, or you know, make sure you're safe for the holidays. Uh, various experts are consulted, and sure enough, they counsel that the six-month-old should get the full course of the vaccines, uh, that is now that's possible, thank God, in Canada, and uh, make sure your kid has the you know a proper appropriate booster, and so on and so forth. So knowing that this stuff is useless, that children don't need it, and that it is on top of that dangerous, why is this being pushed? And and, and this leads me to this added question: Why this conformity of the medical uh, system or the medical the healthcare system to these things? Where is the where are doctors like you? Where's the sovereignty of the physician to say, no, I will not do this. I will not prescribe this. I will not counsel this. I will not do this because this is not right medically. And yeah, those, are, those are hard questions, Jens. And I'll tell you, I, I, I am deeply troubled by this drive to, to vaccinate the children because a healthy child's chance of landing up in hospital with covid well, with with the initial strains was one in was one in 100,000 and and the likelihood of a healthy child dying of covid is one in a million i've heard it's now one in 2 million with omicron so in other words this is almost harmless and most you know 80% of children who get covid don't even know they've got it because they have natural immunity to it from the other coronaviruses and they have far fewer of the um, the ACE2 receptors in their respiratory tract than adults. And so they are naturally protected against it. So this drive to, to so-called keep them safe by vaccinating them against a disease that poses almost zero risk to them is deeply troubling, particularly in light of the fact that we know that the top four destinations for these spike proteins in your body are your liver, your spleen, your adrenal glands and the ovaries. The fact that the ovaries are in the top four destinations for those spike proteins, which cause clotting, bleeding, inflammation, and gene editing is deeply troubling. The fact that because it's crucial that, that people know that when a, when a girl is born, when a baby girl is born, she is born with all of the eggs that she will ever have in her entire life. Uh, 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 all males from the age of puberty are making millions and billions of sperms every day. But girls don't make new eggs. And so if something damages her eggs at any time in her reproductive life, her fertility will be reduced. And so the fact that knowing this, they continue to tell our children to get vaccinated with absolutely zero research to show the long-term safety in terms of fertility is deeply troubling 
I, I, I find it very sinister because there is no benefit and only risk. It is no surprise that uh, people are saying a neo-Malthusianism is on the rise. Douglas? Presumably, Charles, the, the majority of your colleagues in medicine know these basic facts that you've been reviewing. And yet there are very few who have spoken up. And it's not just a matter of speaking up, of course. They're treating patients. They're advising patients. Um, I've been fortunate, I suppose, to have a doctor who, you know, who went through the pro forma of saying, you know, have you been vaccinated for COVID? No. Uh, would you like to be vaccinated? No. Fine. Next question. No pushing. But um, but I think one of the most disconcerting features of this for many people who have begun to grasp that there really is a serious problem here is the fact that the medical profession has not been a bulwark uh it has not been a defense for the for the patients they treat for the people at large now maybe there is no defense for um uh inexcusable um ignorance even on the part of the people but the doctors are not ignorant they know these basic facts and yet they have not been in the front. Some of you have been in the front lines, but the vast majority have not have not been. Now, my my question to you is, and I realize it's a very dangerous question to ask publicly, is how do you account for that? And whilst you think about that question, let me um, at least put myself in a similar position in terms of my own profession, uh, uh, you know, in the university. I, I put uh, to my university, to the operations committee for handling this crisis, uh, three uh, questions, freedom of access to information questions. I, I, I asked them what was said over the two and some years of your regular meetings of this committee, and they met all the time, um, about the possibility of serious adverse reactions or vaccine injury to students whom they were incessantly pushing to get vaccinated. Um, I asked them also whether there was any discussion of McGill's emerging relationship with Moderna, which resulted in a big contract, of course, and uh, uh, so they're, they're now partners with Moderna. And and Moderna, of course, is is financially the property of DARPA and BARDA. So it's American military and American uh, HHS uh, um, backed and, and built, really. Um, so, you know, did the university discuss possible conflict of interest here in that it's urging uh, products, uh, including Moderna products, on its students whilst it's signing a deal with Moderna? Um, I also asked them what reasons they had for imposing some requirements on the community that went beyond even what the Quebec government recommended. 
Well, I'll be writing about this. I am writing about it right now, but <laughs> but I can tell you that the the answers that I got back, the documents I was given, uh, provided the following answers. There were no such discussions on any of those points. Now, I I have I have um, I'm afraid reached the conclusion that the vast majority of colleagues in the university uh, are either relatively thoughtless about these important matters of public interest, or they are cowards in such fear of COVID that that their capacity to think critically is gone, or they are corrupt because they they have um, pharma-backed and, and big tech-backed grants and projects, uh, which they would lose if they were to speak up against this. I can't think of any other options. So I'm, I'm, I'm going on record um, as being very critical of my colleagues in the university. Um, I, I'm not asking you to <laughs> do something similar for uh, your colleagues in medicine, but I think a lot of people that is of the minority who have uh, cotton to the fact that there's something seriously, seriously going wrong here um, are are disturbed, also disturbed about the fact that that so much of the medical profession has caved into this. Do, can you enlighten us at all about about the reasons for that and what we as patients or prospective patients might do about it? Yeah, the you know it's an interesting thing. This whole COVID pandemic has been a moral integrity test, and you know rather like um, I think of it in terms of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which was a moral integrity test in Luke chapter 10. That story about this man who is attacked by robbers and is beaten until he's in literally in critical condition, left naked and half dead in the ditch on the side of the road. And three people walk by. And the first two, the first was a Pharisee. The second was a Levite. And the third was a Samaritan. Now, the Pharisee and the Levite, and the Levites were the priestly class of Israel. Those should have been the two people with the highest moral integrity that should have helped that man. But yet they chose for whatever reason to, to just pass him by. And then a man came along who was a Samaritan. And a Samaritan in Israel was effectively, a, he was a, a religious outcast. The, the the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were half breed Jews who had interbred with the with the Assyrians after the the uh, the exile. And so so the Jews despised them. That man lying in the ditch was probably a Jew, because it was in Israel, and he was on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. But yet this man, who was effectively a cultural or and religious outcast there was willing to risk his own safety and to use his own financial resources to rescue this man who would probably have never rescued him so effectively that was a moral integrity test where the two people who should have had the highest moral integrity failed mm -hmm. and the one who they would have assumed would have had the least moral integrity 
passed with flying colors. COVID has been the same. Unfortunately, most of the medical profession has failed the moral integrity test. Because if you see evidence of harm, you are not supposed to cover it up. And there has been a massive cover-up of the evidence of harm. The um, And I could talk for an hour about that, just the cover-ups. It is appalling. I mean, even in my own patients, I've sent in 14 vaccine injury reporting forms to try and report vaccine injuries in my own patients. And, and I gave up after 14 because every single one were returned to me saying these are not vaccine injuries. These are coincidences. Tell the person to get their next shot. And in fact, they would phone up the person and tell them to get. So you couldn't report them. And then the authorities would say that these side effects are incredibly rare. And basically, it was a censorship of vaccine reporting. The, 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 the VAERS, the you know, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System in the United States, which now records 32,000 people who have died after their COVID shot, 180-some thousand that have ended up in hospital after their COVID shot, 60-some thousand that are permanently disabled from their COVID shot. This should be a massive red flag. This should be a huge what they call safety signal in the jargon of the vaccine safety, yet they completely ignore it. Health Canada ignores it. The FDA ignores it. They carry on saying these shots are safe and effective. And every doctor can look at that information and know that there is something seriously wrong. Why do they not see the safety signal? This is a moral integrity test. Sadly, the medical profession has, with very few exceptions, failed miserably. And unfortunately, I think a lot of it is just simply like the Pharisee and the Levite that didn't want to get involved. Perhaps they were concerned for their own well-being. They didn't know that those robbers that had beaten that man to a pulp and left him on the side of the they those robbers were probably watching from behind a rock, wondering, you know, who, who they can get next. So anyone that stopped there was putting themselves at risk. And they weren't willing to do that. And any doctor that was willing to speak out and say, hang on a moment, there's a big safety signal here. This is this is not going well. These shots don't seem to be working and they don't seem to be safe. They won't say a word because they are just concerned about their own well-being. And and unfortunately, I, I think this is this is tragically sad. You know, I've paid the price. Um and and pretty well every other doctor who has spoken up has paid the price. There there are dozens and dozens of doctors across Canada under investigation, like I am, for questioning this in some way or another. And uh, so you get punished if you speak up, and that's unfortunately. So so I mean I don't mind the punishment. I will. I am passionate about truth, and I am passionate about medical ethics and patient safety. The Hippocratic oath is to do no harm, and if there is evidence of harm, it must be exposed. And so, if I were to not do that, I would be breaking my oath mm. as a doctor. It's profoundly. If I'm just one quick follow up, if you would you say in your experience, I, I don't suppose you've got um sufficient data to to um answer definitively but would you say in your experience that that most uh doctors have themselves 
been uh, taking this course of injections? And if so, um, have 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 they been suppressing their own thinking about this simply so as not to be in a position where where they're in danger uh, in danger at least from the medical authorities, uh, the, the the professional bodies, or perhaps in danger from their own conscience. Yes, well, I think there were many. So, so there were many doctors who who took the shot because they believed what the public health authorities said that it was going to it was going to be our way out of this pandemic that you could keep other people safe and it was your duty to get vaccinated. They believed that, um, and obviously they hadn't. You know, most doctors are pretty busy. They don't have time to do research. I I thought it critically important because this was a completely new virus and new technology. I thought it was critically important to educate myself. And so I didn't go to the convention. You know, I, I looked everywhere I could for information. And that's how I was skeptical of this right from the start is because I, I did my homework. But many doctors just don't do that or don't have time to do that. And so... I think many doctors have been innocent of being literally deceived, just like the rest of the public has been. Uh, they they believed the people, they thought the public health authorities and the government was honest and reliable and truthful, and they believed them. And so many people are reluctant to admit that they were wrong. It, it, sometimes it's a pride issue. It's a bit like repenting. Why is it so hard for so many people to repent? Because it takes humility. It takes humility to admit that you were wrong. And some people don't have enough humility to be able to do that. And so they can't repent and they can't apologize. And yeah, they they, they can't back down. This This is a perfect segue to our next talk. I was going to say um, it's profoundly sobering the things that we're hearing. And we as a church and we as Christians, I think, need to pause for a while and to evaluate what role we have played, which character we have been in the story of the Good Samaritan. Have we been the priest, the Levite, who walks on the other side? Or have we indeed been the Samaritan? And of course, the answer to that is going to be a blend. But what I know as one who is pastoring a church through the pandemic as well, is it was very costly to challenge the narrative, and you quickly found yourself on the outside. And people who wanted to ask questions were shamed into submission. So there was an ecclesial coercion that was going on just as much as there was coercion to get vaccinated, coercion to put on your mask and shut up and don't ask questions. I'd like to explore this a bit more in our next episode. Charles, thank you for being with us. It's been super educational, and though it is sobering, it's also been deeply encouraging. So we'll look forward to talking to you more momentarily. Thank you. Thank you.